So uh, this is uh, episode four. Wait, what are we talking about? I don't know. We're, we haven't we haven't done the intro yet. Let's do the intro, then we'll get into what we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> so episode number four. Do we have a Do we have a name of this podcast yet? It's called the Emrod Podcast. It's called we actually have a cover art. We're on iTunes. Whoa! whoa when did When did all this happen? <laughs> Welcome to episode four of the Ember Map Podcast. I'm Sam. I'm Ryan. And we're here to talk about Ember. Nice. There so uh, what kind of stuff, what kind of Ember code did you work on this week? What Ember code did I work on? Um, I have been working on profiler application that we've been working on the last few months. And I was doing some design mostly, actually, and some form stuff. Um, yeah, what about you? Yeah, I'm working on an application. I've been doing uh, a bunch of login stuff, a bunch of authentication um, using JWT tokens, which I've I've learned a lot about in the past week or so. Uh, so yeah, it's been it's been fun. It's been exciting. Nice. Yeah, one thing that strikes me with is is just how difficult forms still are at yeah. a high level. You know, in Ember, but even I mean, something that's been worked on for so long, you would think would be completely well understood. Everyone would be doing forms the same way. And that's not true. That's not even true for us across different apps, you know, at, at the details of it. You know, I think I think in like a server-side application, your forms, there, there's not multiple states, right? You're filling out a form, you click submit, and if there's like a validation error, the server re-renders the form. Um, so you always have like a clean state. Every render is always a clean state of the form, even if there are validation errors. Where when we build forms with Ember apps, um, we're doing live validation. Sometimes we delay validation to to the input blurring out or the form being submitted. Uh, sometimes you have a validation error. You know, you tear down the component, you re-render the component. Uh, do you save that state? Do you do you roll back the attributes? And they, I think there's a lot more. You know, forms in in a, a server-driven error I think are pretty straightforward. But there's in, like one state. I mean, yeah, you can describe exactly. the form with a single piece of state. Basically, it's like the URL and the current state of the user. But then, yeah, maybe that's why they're so hard is because there is so much state that leaks into those forms like that affects the forms. Right. It's it's like you were saying, blurring. Have I hit enter? Am I authenticated? Has any of that data changed? And if so, like the form is it currently rendered to the screen and does it need to refresh in some way um you know we've done things where you have to like create a user and then create an address or like an like some other model all within the sign up form and it's like now you have that's even harder because of that goes back to like transactions and stuff like this that's another really good point in in uh, a server driven world you are filling out an input that's going to be used in, in a post request. But in Ember, where we're binding our forms to models, usually multiple models. Um, so like, you know, you have a user, a user has many addresses and you're adding multiple addresses to that user. So you don't just have a bunch of inputs that are going to show up in a post request. They're inputs that are bound to different models. Or you have to, exactly, or you have to like make a get request to something. Or, or go to Stripe to make a request before completing the form. And it's like the server is good about encapsulating all that. And from the browser to server's perspective, it's like one request. 
But with Ember, it could be now Ember is managing all that complexity and it could be going lots of different ways. And then every time you add a new path, you like multiply the amount of states this thing can be in. And it's so easy not to think about it. So it's tough. Yeah. So have you done anything uh, recently that makes forms easier? So one thing that we've been doing, you know, first with Ember Map and then on some client projects is basically trying to take some of those nice patterns um, from Rails Form 4, from other libraries we've seen in like the Ember ecosystem, the React ecosystem. And basically, I, you know, I think it comes back to this discussion about state and the idea being, okay, forms interact with state a lot and they are derived from state, like the visual representation is derived from all the state. So let's take all that state as like a bag, tie it to the form, and then share it with all the different components that make up your actual form. So, you know, if you think about like a form group and a form field and a label, all these things can change based on the state of the form. So whether the user has submitted it, whether a client side validation failed, whether a server side validation failed. And so something that I've found that's like really cleaned things up is having like a UI form component, let's say at the top of the tree and basically delegating all of the state changes to that component. And then that component can yield back down useful information to all the other sub components. So things like, again, the validation state and all this kind of stuff. And then from the consumer's perspective, you can just render, you know, like a form field or an input and you can tie it back to a field on a model and again, the UI form is like aware of the model. It's aware of how the fields tie back to validations on the model and all this kind of thing. So that's, again, it's still, it's still, it hasn't, we haven't gotten to the point where it's like a totally generic solution, but I find making something like this, this tree of components for a specific use case has been like the best way to help reduce the complexity. And we use contextual components to pass data between these things. So it's a use a user, use a developer making a form. You're not thinking of how does how does data flow from this root form element down to the child elements. Exactly. And maybe maybe something we can do is we'll throw up a screenshot of, of some of our forms and you can kind of see the abstraction with the form tag and then the various types of inputs we use. That's a great idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this, you know, when we were talking about this, like one thing that would make building these kinds of components way easier would be to have like splats and named blocks. It's like a couple of pieces that are making it hard because let's say you have like a big form or a multi-part form, but you do have that root UI form component and you want to be able to break, maybe even want to break up your, your actual form into other components themselves just to help manage the complexity but you want to always be in the context of that parent form and then it becomes hard to actually do that. It's like you have a hash of things that you've yielded, how to pass that around, how to make that available to everybody. It actually turns out to be pretty tough. Yep. And I think splat arguments and named blocks would help with these kinds of things. Also with like modals, you know, there's a couple of these kinds of UI components that come up time and time again. And I think if we had those missing pieces, we'd be able to make them in a truly re reusable, truly generic way that would solve like all of our use cases. Nice. So yeah, let's talk about login. Yeah. So I was working. I've been working on some login pieces for an application, and uh, there's an interesting bit here where the the application uses uh, JWT, JSON Web Tokens, uh, to authenticate the user. And the, this app, application is, is a private application. Uh, it's not a public application. So they don't want to load, we don't want to load the application uh, to any user on the internet. Um, 
So there's a whole bunch of auth before you can even get to the Ember application. So once you've loaded the Ember application, you're, you're already auth. But the Ember application doesn't know that, right? Like the Ember application just, just renders and it boots up. Uh, it needs to know who you are, how you're auth. Uh, so the system we came up with is a, there's a cookie. There's a cookie, it says who you are, it says what your JSON web token is, uh, it has a whole bunch of information about the user that's loading the Ember application. Um, and this works, uh, this works well, but there's a question. So can you talk a little bit about JSON web token? Cause I don't have a lot of experience with it. Um, yeah, sure. Just it, briefly kind of what it is. Cause I'm more used to dealing with kind of browser sessions. Absolutely. So JSON web token is a way to encode, uh, authentication information, uh, in a JSON payload, um, encode it into a string so that the browser can use that string with every request. So it's, it's a, um, the string is structured into like three pieces. There's like um, the JSON payload, a signed secret of the JSON payload, and there's something else I'm not remembering that's, that's included in there. Gotcha, um, but it's just a JSON object, just like would come back and forth from normal Ajax requests. Yeah, it, it is. So, so JWT is, is an encoded version of that JSON object. So it's, it's a string. Uh, but when, gotcha. you, when you decode it, you would see uh, a JSON object in gotcha. one of the pieces. The whole point of uh, JWT is that you have this, this payload that you send to all your, with all your requests to the server. And that way the server knows who you are. And, and part of the, JW, the JWT is, uh, is who you are and then uh, something that the server signs. So when the server gets the token, it can quickly verify the payload you're sending with uh, the thing that it signed. And mm. if those things match, it knows that, that the token you sent over was valid. Um, you know, Rails and Devise do something similar with, with a session cookie. I, I think one of the benefits of JWT is that uh, it's, it's not built into to like a cookie or, or the session. So which you is specific it, to a browser. Which exactly. So JWT, if you're building like an API that needs to work on mobile apps and Ember apps, uh, JWT is is kind of the one system that will bridge both of those. Gotcha. Um, so that's what you were working on. So you were so back to your story. You were saying you use JWT. So like you were just explaining, that will kind of authenticate every every request that the Ember app will make during the session that the user is using it. But the, this, the, it doesn't actually log in the user. Correct. So the typical JWT workflow would be I come to a site, I get a form with username and password. I fill out those fields, I submit the form, and the server responds with, with a JWT that I can then use in all my future requests. Gotcha. But with this application, we're, we're saying that the, this application is private. The user is already going to be authenticated before they load the Ember app. Like they've already gone through the login process and now they're ending up on the Ember app and, and they are logged in. So we don't want to present them with another form in the Ember app that says enter your username and password because that would be super annoying to have to enter your username and password <laughs> twice. Uh, so we need some way of getting that token to the Ember app um, because we're not going to ask the user to enter the username and password. So what we decided on was we were going to use a, a cookie uh, for the browser use case because it's an Ember app. And that will come over with the index HTML that, file. Exactly, that uh, will come okay. over with the index.html file, um, and then the M the Ember app will read that cookie and then say, "Okay, any Ember data requests I make, I'm going to use this this token." So there's an interesting thing: you're developing an Ember app, 
how do you set a cookie with your index.html? Because that thing is served from uh, Ember CLI. Mm. And uh, Ember has, uh, they have a server. Um, so you're talking now about local development. Local like development. you're just trying to build this thing out. I'm trying the to build this. The server doesn't exist right now and you just want to work on it. Exactly. I, I have a development environment and I want to serve, you know, I want my development environment to be as close to production as possible. Right. So production is saying that when we serve that HTML file, there's going to be a, a cookie that says who the user is. I want my development environment to match that. Nice. And there is a, um, you know, Ember CLI uses Express to to serve the index.html file. And you can use a Ember CLI generator called Server and you can hook into that Express app. Mm. Uh, so we have a, you know, you type Ember G server index mm-hmm. and it, it basically gives you an express middleware. And in that I say, okay, if I'm serving the index.html, I'm going to add a cookie. Uh, and the awesome thing is this is node, um, you know, it's express. So I have some stuff in there where I added JWT, I generated JWT token when the, when I'm developing the app. So every time I, um, Every time Ember CLI live reloads, I get a brand new JWT token. And you're using like node packages. Yeah, I'm using so node packages. So it's actually like a legitimate it's token. A legit, yeah, it's not just some like cash thing. It's, right. It's a legitimate token. And it's coming over the network because exactly. it's actually coming as a, as a cookie in the actual HTTP yep. response. So development is is super close to, to what production that, will be like. That's awesome. Um, and the way you hook into the server, it's, you're, it's just you're hooking into the flow of middleware that starts with basically the result of the broccoli build and gets served up but you're not affecting any of that you're just like tagging on the end of that yeah exactly so when your browser makes a request to like localhost 4200 slash index.html i'm able to intercept that request and, and add things to it nice so this is pretty powerful i mean you could like rewrite the index or you could change other headers you know i'm just using a tad cookie right um that's gonna you know tell the ember app who the user is but basically, if you ever have to deal with things at the request layer that you want to mimic the production environment, that's how you would do exactly. it. Exactly. And now that's part of the repository that will be committed as part of the source code. So anyone... Any developer that, who, that's running Ember Serve is going to have all this functionality. That's awesome. So yeah. they don't have to set any other services up on their computer yeah. or anything like that. Exactly. So it's, if you have like a complex you know, production uh, environment, which most Ember apps do, right. this is a way where you can add more server pieces. Right. Um, so yeah, this is this is great. I love this. It makes development super easy. That's really cool. Now, what about testing? So testing, testing, we won't use this Express middleware. But what I do in testing is, like I said, the contract is when the Ember app boots up, it's going to read from a few cookies, figure out who the user is. So I have a, a before each in one of my tests. So you know, my tests that want to make sure that I'm a valid user. I just set up a bunch of cookies in before each, and then I destroy them in after each. So you can you can do that. Like in, in testing, we don't, you know, when we're testing applications, it's not about building out the same infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Things like cookies, we're going to expect to be working. Right. Things like the server, we're going to uh, the server serving a cookie, we're going to expect to be working. So it's about you know mocking at the boundaries. The application code that interacts with the yeah. cookie. So so just saying, okay, pretend there's a cookie here. Um, set that up and before each get rid of it and after each uh, nice. so it makes a test testing you know we're not we're not testing the whole environment we're just testing the ember bits and so the, the boundaries we're responsible exactly. for and the boundaries a cookie we don't care how the cookie got there mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
but that still lets you set a valid cookie and then assert against what the MRAP does and then an invalid cookie and assert against what exactly. the MRAP does. Nice. Exactly. Cool. That's yeah. really cool. And uh, maybe this is another good screenshot. We'll show that while we're talking about this. We'll show the Express yeah. uh, middleware. Nice. Yeah, so did you see... Um, on Twitter, the uh, Matt Beal wrote a blog post about Ember 3.0. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. Really, really exciting. Yeah. Robert uh, Jackson told me there was never going to be an Ember 3 like six months ago. So that just goes to show you how much you can trust that guy. <laughs> um, I, I'm pretty sure that, that half the Ember code in production that we have is, is add-ons written by that guy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. We owe him, we owe him something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What was I going to say? So how does, you know, you, you've been a Rails developer longer than I have. You've worked at companies that have gone through major Rails releases. Um, and, you know, I think the Ember community takes a lot after some of those kind of the, the conventions and the practices established by the Rails community when it comes to things like release and, and all this. So how did that strike you when you read through this, how it compares to that? Yeah, so I would say, so... The difference between an, a major Ember release and a major Rails release, uh, they couldn't be more different. <laughs> um, in Rails releases between like you know 4.2 and 5.0, um, or 3.2 and, and 4.0, that's when all these big things come in—the new APIs, the new features. So um, like 5.0 had like action cable. Action cable, yep. Um, so like the the big new exciting things come out with the with the major versions. Um, and there's always a big upgrade guide. Um, you know, the Rails team does a great job documenting this, but there's always a big upgrade guide that you have to follow when you're going from between major versions of Rails. You, you can't let like the, your test suite plus deprecations guide oh, you. Oh, I've never had, I've never had just, well. A on. seamless upgrade. You can, you can let your test suite guide you, but but when you bump from like Rails 4.2 to 5.0, you'll have failing tests. Gotcha. Just, or, so you're or, just going to expect time to upgrade. Right. I mean, or you'll at least have deprecations and tests. You'll you'll have something that it won't be seamless. You'll have work to do. Now I've I've upgraded plenty of apps from you know starting all the way at three three uh, all the way up to where we are today. Yeah. Um, so it's possible. And Rails, and yeah, they, Rails, they, they Rails make is it, great. They, Rails they makes give it you easy. a lot. Of, they make it. Big effort to make it possible and easy enough. But just to be clear, with Rails, the big stuff comes in in the major versions. So going, so going how does that compare to Ember? Yeah. So to Ember, Ember, uh, we were looking at these 3.0, you know, release notes. What's going to change? And Ember doesn't add any new stuff in the major versions. the The major versions are they use that that they use the major versions to take all the deprecations. That were previously added and remove that code. Just get rid of the cruft. Just get rid of the cruft. So, right now in our code, two of our code bases, we have no deprecations. So, if 3.0 came out tomorrow, we'd be able to we would get just, on Ember 3.0, yep, which exactly. is pretty crazy. Um, you know, and that I'm, means we're kind of doing best practices. We're doing what the community would like to see, how the community would like to see people writing Ember apps today. Exactly. Um, and, you know, a lot of the deprecations that 3.0 is going to remove, basically get rid of the code, they're probably deprecations you've already fixed. I mean, there are, there are deprecations in there that we had fixed over a year ago. Yeah. Um, so if you've been, you know, doing a, a decent job of keeping 
an eye on deprecation warnings in your Ember app, you're going to have no problem upgrading. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I actually thought that we were going to have something interesting to talk about. <laughs> like, oh, like, what are we going to do about this in 3.0 and how are we going to handle this? Are we going to tell people to set aside three weeks to, <laughs> to fix their apps or yeah. upgrade their apps or whatever? But we're not. I looked through the deprecations and I was like, yeah, we. I think we took that care of that one like nine months ago. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, I'm expecting... Uh, Smooth sailing there. That's great. Yeah, and they talked about, you know, learning a lot from the one to two upgrade and not trying to sneak in a bunch of stuff at the end. It feels like they have kind of a regular cadence now so that no one's going to feel like they have to sneak it in, sneak something in to get a feature on. Yeah, and when you say sneak something in, when they upgraded, you know, when we went from from 1.13 to, uh, to 2.0, they added a whole bunch of deprecations in like 1.11, 1.12, 113 so that they could then clear all that stuff out mm-hmm. in 2.0 um, but yeah there's no we haven't seen any new deprecations coming in the latest versions right so, and I think they realized that you know a lot of people were um, found that that process difficult right um, so yeah I think you know this is probably the most boring major upgrade that that will do and that's totally awesome yeah <laughs> And then the new features that people are working on, they could land before the three. There'll be some of them that will land before 3.0, some that will land after. But they're basically not even tied to this whole major release. Right, right. So it's not like 3.0 is going to have a whole bunch of new APIs and that's how we're going to get these new features. It's like if the second half of the router APIs land and, you know... 216 or 217 they'll just get there otherwise it'll be 31 or 32 it doesn't really matter it's yep. not really tied to one or the other yeah that's so great ma- i mean it makes our jobs as, as developers especially like you know as developers we don't really get a lot of time to do maintenance yeah there's often pressure for bug fixes and feature development yeah um so i think things like this make our job easy and, and that's one of the reasons I love Ember. Yeah, same. I think Rails five beta was was in beta for like a year or something like that. Rails, Rails, the Rails betas. That Rails is always in beta for a while, <laughs> and it's like beta release candidate one, release candidate two. Yeah. Um, where yeah, but, but I mean, it makes sense. You you're gonna have a whole bunch of new APIs in those versions, so you're gonna want to to test. Um, your applications you're going to want to know about this stuff before you upgrade yeah uh, Ember not so much yeah it's great and it's really the kind of thing that that does make Ember really good for for teams for long term application development it's the kind of stuff that's not really going to get sung about a ton maybe it's not like the new hot thing no of course not of course not you want to hear about how in you know uh, JavaScript framework you know 4.0 that that server-side rendering is just automatically built in and all you have to do is upgrade but right the the reality is is you know you're if leaving a people behind if you move fast in certain ways or you don't consider the existing applications exactly exactly and, and any framework that's going to make big promises like that is is going to have a whole bunch of breaking changes what you said leave people behind right cool so you made some uh, cool modals this week huh Yes, um, I was working with Modal Dialog, one of my favorite add-ons. I've I've worked with it a lot over the last few, couple of years, but um, yeah, it's fun to get. It's it's always a there's always like a little challenge to wrap it in a specific a kind of application specific modal and get it to do whatever you, what exactly what you want to do. But once you do, it's really nice. And I feel like I've gotten almost all the way there in the past, but 
the animations is kind of where it's been tough and especially animating out because you know when you destroy a view in ember um that all happens synchronously ember gets rid of it throws it away and you know draws the next screen um, and so you don't have control over that process whereas with css animations and animating in you like you have control just because you know it renders it synchronously but you can start out at zero opacity and fade it in but on destroy it just goes away instantly so you don't even have that chance you know with liquid fire the strategy is to basically have a copy of this destroying element and then you have a chance to do something with it and so there's never been a good bridge between liquid fire and modal dialogue and they just don't work together the way liquid fire works with other components in ember but um Chris, the, the guy who spoke at Ember NYC, works on this uh, add-on called Liquid Tether. And Liquid Tether is kind of exactly this idea. It tries to marry the two concepts of Liquid Fire and Modal Dialogue. Um, so yeah, I was working on some stuff and I really wanted to animate out. So it was finally kind of time for me to dive into this. And it ended up being pretty simple. Awesome. It, it I know we're doing a podcast, but... It looks amazing. It's one of the <laughs> coolest uh, modal animations I've ever seen, and it's not—it's not advanced. It's just like silky, buttery smooth. Yeah, I—I I wanted. Um, we were working like an invitation flow, and so it's something you would see maybe when you first joined a new app on iOS, and you just have like full-page invitation sheets that are like panning between each other. And so I wanted something really simple. And none of the pre-existing liquid fire transitions worked. Um, so I just wrote a simple one, fade to white, which fades away the thing and kind of puts a cover over it and then bleeds into the new view. And it was like super easy. And then my modal dialogue, the newest version of modal dialogue, if you have liquid tether installed, it automatically uses that under the hood instead of um, tether dialogue, which uses ember tether, the unanimated version of it. And so, um, yeah, once I got a few settings configured, it was basically a drop-in replacement. And then you, you update the transition map in Liquid Fire, and then like your modals just do this cool fade to white thing. How how does your modal know how does your modal know which transition to use in the transition map? Yeah, so this is the one thing I still find a little bit awkward about the API, but the way I'm doing it is it goes back to the global transitions.js map, which is just a file that comes with liquid fire. So I think the idea here originally was like liquid fire, one of the main use cases was animating routes. And just like we have a router map and you want a map because you want the first match to win. And then you will have a catch all routes or basically that's how you need to do it when you're defining that. And so if you wanted to do something similar where you're saying like what transitions apply to which route transitions, you'd also want a map to define the hierarchy. And so the map lets you define rules that say, if this element has this class, if this route has this name, apply this transition. And so what I did was after installing liquid tether, I gave the modal that I wanted to have this fade to white transition, just like a UI modal dash dash fade to white class. Ah, and then I just added a rule to the transitions map that said, anything that has that use my new fade to white transition. Gotcha. And then I did another one that just said use fade for everything else. So like all of our modals, like our app specific modals have like a UI modal class. And I just said, if you, 
If you just have UI modal, use fade. So this is where the, the first one wins thing comes in. So if I have fade to white, that's going to be defined above. Exactly. And even though those have UI modal as well, they match that one first. So they use fade to white, awesome. which is kind of cool. So like part of me is like, it's cool because you have these global rules and then all of my modals get it. But part of me wishes I just could define it locally on the component. Yeah, it's like almost a transition. Like you, you want the animation like co-located with the thing it's animating. Exactly. And then if you happen to need to share an animation, you could like hoist it up and share it in another way, like maybe just importing a module or a function. I think I would prefer that. But it still was pretty easy to get going and like it makes sense once you understand where the origin comes from. Nice. How was um, how was writing the fade to white animation code in liquid fire like how was that <laughs> that was a, an exercise in like a blind man was like blind man leading the blind <laughs> that's what i felt like <laughs> talking with myself about it um but uh no i just i, I went to the predefined transitions transitions and, and copied the fade one which is i knew kind of i wanted aspects of that it handles a lot more out of the box and i just wanted something really simple that worked for our use case you know it's cool it's like a I need to do a deep dive into this so I really understand it. I haven't yet. And so I was just kind of just finding my way through. But it's a promise-based API. Uh, Liquidfire uses Velocity under the hood, which is an animation library based on promises. So you can say, you know, animate the opacity from 0 to 50 over a span of 250 milliseconds. And then you can call dot then on it. And then you can say, wait a thousand seconds and then dot then animate in my new element or whatever or animate the left position or the top position, whatever you want to do. And you can just string these together. It's pretty cool. And whatever you return, the promise chain that you return from your transition, liquid fire automatically applies and just waits. So like if you're transitioning across routes or if you're destroying or creating a component and it uses that transition, it just waits the entire promise and to make sure it works, which is cool for debugging too, because like you can return like infinite waiters Mm-hmm. in the middle of the promise chain and like see how it looks at each step. So I really like the promise API. It's just that some of the other APIs, you know, I'm just not as familiar with them, but it was pretty easy to get it to do what I wanted to do. And it's fun to feel empowered like that. Nice. How, um, so you said that like when Ember destroys a component, it's like, that's it. Just gets removed from the DOM. How does this work with, with liquid fire then? How, how, what does Liquid Fire do so the component, you have an opportunity to animate that component away? Yeah, I was looking, today I was working on another transition and I put like, you know, like a 100,000 second waiter in just because I wanted to, I was having some styling issues and I noticed that there was two of them. So I think the way, I'm not exactly sure the technical details of Liquid Fire, but the Liquid Tether implementation that's on top they have like a global container for your liquid tether modals and there's two of them and one of them said like liquid tether and the other one said liquid tether is dash dash is animating and the original one had like visibility hidden and the second one was like getting velocity animations on it so it was like changing the opacity and stuff so i think it makes a copy applies your transition and i'm not sure if it notifies like if ember's rendering layer is aware that that's going on but um I don't think it is. I think Ember just does its thing synchronously or in the next tick of the run loop and it just carries on its merry way. But the new view and the old view, which you have access to in your transition, don't end up in their final spot until you say so. And so from a user's perspective, 
the thing is halting, even if Ember thinks it's already rendered everything it needs to render. Right. If that makes sense. Yep. Totally. So I think that's how it worked. But it would be really interesting to do a deeper dive or, you know, maybe even have Edward talk about it. Because um, I would love to learn about that. And I know he has some ideas for how we could he could improve some of those primitives as well. Some things he's worked on with, with other Ember animation stuff. But, um, yeah, it's all... And needless to say, it's, like, really interesting stuff. It's super exciting, too. So Awesome. Yeah, it, it looks amazing. Thanks. Cool. I guess that's all we have time for today. Uh, nice chatting with you. And I will see you at work in about five minutes and tomorrow as well. And probably the next day as well. Awesome. Well, the next day is Saturday. <laughs> the so next you, day is you Saturday. will not see me at work. <laughs> that's good. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. See you next time. Yeah.